breeze coming across, the wind, which is why none of us use notes up here. Uh, I guess somebody tried that once, and they were chasing them across down to the water. And so wind of change, and we picked that on purpose because wind or breath is the most common metaphor for the Holy Spirit. And whenever the Holy Spirit shows up, guess what happens? Change occurs. Change occurs. So what we would like to do is begin a journey, and let's talk about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, but let's introduce him the way the Bible does. And so where does the Bible start with the Holy Spirit? Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1. Before we look at Genesis 1, though, I want you to understand the context. When, whenever we talk about Genesis 1 and 2 in, in today's world, often the discussion moves toward science and things like that and the whole question of creation and evolution. I don't want to go there. The, the ancient people weren't asking those questions, so let's ask the questions that they were asking and see what pops up. So here's the storyline. Many of you are familiar with it. You have the Exodus, where the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and God, uh, he, they've been there for over 400 years, and they begin to cry out because the Egyptians are mistreating them. And so God brings them, he hears their voice, and he goes down, hears their cries, and he goes out and he gets them, and he leads them out under the hand of Moses. We call that the Exodus. Probably familiar with that story, right? They know very little about this God. He's not spoken. He's been silent for 400 years, everything we have tells us. All they have are the stories that have been passed down generation by generation of the way he spoke to the forefathers. So they were familiar with the basic covenants and the promises and the basic storyline. Um, but they don't know God the way we know God. In fact, they were probably more Egyptian in their theology than they were theistic because they lived in the middle of Egypt. And we have lots of evidence throughout the wandering years, the 40 years in the desert where they practiced uh, practices that God abhorred. Where'd they get those practices? From Egypt. So when they left Egypt, they were pretty, um, pretty Egyptian. So that raises a question. Why would God reveal the creation account in 1500 BC, roughly? Why not do it earlier with Abraham? Why didn't he tell Abraham all about this? Why not do it later? Why didn't he to wait until David or Daniel? Why did he start with Moses? Why is that the starting point for God to talk about creation? If we can answer that question, we're beginning to get a sense of what God is doing. Mark mentioned that today we're going to be focusing on God the Father. Um, that's the way they conceived of God. They conceived of him as their father. I understand it's Father's Day. I know that. and I, I am a father, and uh, I miss my father terribly. He's been gone 28 years, and uh, not a year go by that I just wish he wasn't here to talk to. But I know that also, I also know that many of you out there have, uh, don't have positive experiences with the Father. I recognize that. And for you, I'm sorry. I really am. Genuinely sorry. So when I talk about God as Father today, for those of you that have had hard experiences, you like the noise? Yes, the Holy Spirit in the background. Just remember that. When you hear the wind blowing. God's trying to emphasize a point. For those of you that have had hard experiences with your fathers, if you can, 
set that aside, and let's try to redefine what a good father would be like because God gives us that picture. Okay? So I want to be sensitive to you. And, um, and so God the Father is going to be very involved and very present in what happens. He shows up and rescues the Israelites from Egypt. He shows up when the, when the bondage is too hard, when the pain is there, when they're working beyond their abilities, and they're, they're desperate, and they cry out. So the first thing we learn is that God shows up. He listens. He said, I heard your cry, and I have come down to rescue you. By the way, that's the word to save. That's the background for the word to save, is to rescue. So when Christianity talks about being saved, we're talking about being rescued. So God says, I've come down to rescue you. I have come down to take care of you, to watch over you. I will make you my people. So he leads them out in the Exodus. He leads them out of Egypt. And, um, and they wander for several months, uh, uh, for a couple months, I mean, out in the desert. Uh, they've not met God, by the way. He hadn't said anything to them. He only talked to Moses up until this point. So here they are out in the middle of the desert, and all they've seen is God's incredible power. That's all they've seen. They saw the ten plagues. You know what the ten plagues were all about? It was God systematically destroying the key gods of Egypt. Every one of those ten plagues was an attack on one of the major gods of the Egyptian pantheon. And so the Israelites, they had seen God at work. They had seen God destroying the gods of Egypt and proving that they were powerless and impotent and that they were uncaring. That's a pretty good father that protects his children that way. So they come out and they wander through the, uh, they go through the part of the desert. They hadn't yet met God. They had only seen his power, but they didn't really know very much about him. That's kind of the background to this story. Then along the way, they come to Mount Sinai. This was recorded in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. One of the best all-time stories of the Bible. It just lays out so much of all of our theology, what we believe. They're at the base of Mount Sinai, and you can read it sometime. It's actually a funny story if you pay attention to the details, because in an early in Exodus 19, it says they come right up to the edge of the mountain, but they don't touch it. Because God said, the mountain is holy, and if you touch it, you will die. So they walk right up to the edge. And God said, I'm going to introduce myself to them, and he told Moses in three days. So all the people on the third day, they came right up to the edge of the mountain, and they waited. And on the third day, guess what happened? <laughs> God sent this earthquake. The mountain shook more than it's ever shook. He sent thunder, a noise like a trumpet blaring. Lightning, smoke, they could barely see. This horrendous noise, and it terrifies them. And then in Exodus 20, the very next chapter, it says, the Israelites stood at a great distance from the mountain. <laughs> what happened? They ran. <laughs> so when God introduced himself to them, what he did was he terrified him. And then Moses gives these wonderful words which sets the, a foundation for what it means to fear God. He said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Aren't those good words? Don't be afraid of this God. 
God has done this in order to put his fear in you so that you will believe in him and obey from then on. And that's what it means to fear God. It doesn't mean to be afraid of God. It means to stand back and go, whoa. In their case, our God is bigger than any other God. We saw him destroy the ten gods of Egypt, and now look what he did to us. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. That's how they met God. That's how God introduced himself to them. Okay, so now I ask the question, why did he reveal this creation account in 1500 B.C.? Because while they're at the base of Mount Sinai, Moses goes up on the mountain and gets this story. And he comes down, and he tells them the story. How would they know what creation happened? All they knew is what they had been told in Egypt. It's kind of a crazy story. If you go back and read the ancient cultures, every ancient culture just about in that region had a story of creation. And they have a lot of similarities. I'm going to talk to you in just a minute about what the differences are. But they had a lot of similarities. They all have a flood story. Almost all of them have an Adam-type story. Um, but their belief on how everything was formed was very different than our belief. Creation, what we see here, happened because the gods were fighting each other. The male gods were fighting and somehow, I don't understand how, they didn't either, but somehow in the middle of their fight, you have an older God and a younger God, two males going after each other. And, um, and somehow out of that, voila, all this appears. That's kind of what they thought. They were, humans were considered to be an afterthought. The gods, once they finally settled down and got everything under control and got the power reestablished, they said, oh, we need to make humans so that they'll feed us. So that's why you were created, to serve the gods, to feed the gods. Uh, the gods didn't really care about you, unless you didn't take care of them, then they did. So what that means is then, your whole, your whole approach to the gods was not to uh, be pleased with them, not to look for them, for example, to be happy with them, any of that. Your whole thinking was, we just got to keep them happy. We got to appease them. We have to feed them because the gods are what keep everything going, keep everything in order. I'm describing their worldview. In Egypt, they had a particularly unusual form of the idea of creation. Creation occurred every 24 hours. All the ancient nations understood creation in the sense of God controlling everything. Order, cosmos, not chaos. And so the Egyptians believed that the sun god Ra would rise and everything was ordered. And so creation occurred in the morning when he rose. He'd go through the day. At the end of the day, he'd go into the netherworld, the underworld. Everything would revert back to chaos. The, Egypt, or the Israelites brought that thinking with them. They didn't have a navy. They were afraid of the depths of the ocean. That's where chaos lurked. Which, by the way, might give a little bit of insight into Peter's request of Jesus, command me to walk on the water. It wasn't a scientific command that he was talking about, probably. It may have had a lot more to do with overcoming his fears of what they'd been raised with. So in Egypt, creation occurred every 24 hours. In their theology, creation occurred every 24 hours because when the sun came up, when the sun god Ra came up from the netherworld, the underworld, he brought order to everything. 
So you can, can you kind of see how this young, fledgling group of people, when they come out of Egypt, they know very little about the truth. They know very little about this God. They've not heard from him. They've only seen his power, and that was in the last year of their, their time there. They've only heard the stories that have been passed down. They don't know about creation. They don't know what that really means. They don't know anything about who this is. there one God? And by the way, God is very gentle with them. He doesn't start by saying there is no other God. He starts by saying, you shall have no other God before me. He starts with where they were, and then he leads them on this journey very slowly to help them understand that there is no other God. Because that was their culture. They believed it. That's the story. That's the background behind when God decides to introduce himself. So he introduces himself with a great act. And that act is at Mount Sinai. And he shakes the mountain and he terrifies them. And then he says, now don't be afraid of me. I wanted you to see my power because when I lead you further out into the desert, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. And then he sends Moses up on the mountain and Moses begins to write down the rest of the story, if you will. And he comes down and he reads it to them. Genesis 1. And that's what I'm going to read to you today. It's pretty easy to find in the Bible. (laughs) It's the very first chapter. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. So right off the bat, God the Father puts himself right out there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's very... very Uh, common today for us to wrestle with the scientific aspect of that, but that is a really new uh, discussion in world history. The ancients never even dreamed of asking that question. They assumed that matter existed eternally. So they never read into this that this was created out of nothing. Uh, In fact, the words that's used here to create, God created the heavens and the earth, well, it could mean that, but it doesn't have to mean that it was created out of nothing. Because later on, in verse, I think it's verse 27, he says he created a man and a woman. uses the same verb, but then he goes on in chapter 2 to explain that he did it by, by taking the dust of the earth. He took what was already existing and formed a human out of it. Do I believe that God created out of nothing? I absolutely do believe that. But it's not based on this passage. It's based on Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we believe that God created the universe out of nothing. So God is not trying, I don't think he's trying to answer a scientific question here. Maybe it does allow for that, but I want us to go back early in time and look at the question he was answering for the Israelites. Because you see, the Israelites were a group of people. They were slaves. They were slaves. That means they knew basically nothing except how to work and get beat. They didn't know anything about military strategy. They didn't know anything about foreign diplomacy. They didn't know anything about what it means to be a nation. How in the world do you create leaders out of a bunch of slaves? They knew very little about the truth of God and what he had done. They knew very little about his love and care for them. They just didn't know any of these things. And so God has this problem. He takes this group of people out of Egypt. In fact, you could ask the question, uh, Maybe, 
the fact that God sent them down to Egypt was an act of grace because he sent 70 people down to Egypt, all right? He formed this young nation, remember the story, with the patriarchs, 70 people, sent them down to Egypt, and he planted them right smack in the middle of the only superpower at that time. But this superpower was unique, Egypt. Number one is they despised the Israelites because they were hairy, they worked with animals, and they didn't smell very good. And so by planting them right smack in the middle of Egypt, he guaranteed that they wouldn't intermarry. They'd never lose their ethnic identity, their distinctiveness, because the Egyptians would never intermarry with them. Every other ancient nation is gone. Every single one, including Egypt. What we have today is different than what was in the Bible. And so God took this young, this group of 70, put them right smack in the middle of this nation that would not intermarry with them, but would protect them and would feed them. It's brilliant. Who would have thought? And then he just stepped back for 400 years and let them grow and let them grow and let them grow until there was hundreds and thousands of them, perhaps millions of them. And then he said, all right, the time is right. And then he brought them out. But they're not a nation yet. They have no identity. Their identity is more Egyptian than it is theistic. And so he's going to start at the beginning. And he's going to begin to create an identity. That's why 1500 BC is so important. Because the nation is standing at the base of Mount Sinai. And he, they're not yet a nation. But he's got to create them. Turn them into a nation. By the way, that tells us why Moses was raised the way Moses was. Remember the story of Moses? He was put in the, the basket and taken into Pharaoh's house. So by the time Moses left Egypt, he had the finest training the world had to offer on everything from military strategy to diplomacy to foreign policy. He had been trained in all those things. He was in Pharaoh's household. So God, separate from the Israelites, started this journey with this man Moses to create a leader who could take this nation who knew very little and start to turn them into a nation and start to shape them. You understand what I'm saying by this? So he comes down and he says, all right, now let me begin to educate you about God. The first thing he brought down was the Ten Commandments. That's the first thing he brought down. That's actually the first time God's, God writes down what he wants to have done. Those Ten Commandments, they, they continue on. They are the core commandments that should define all of civilization. Shouldn't murder. Shouldn't steal things from your neighbor. Shouldn't worship any of the other gods. And the list goes on. You always should honor your parents. Kids. <laughs> Core foundation for all of civilization. Just that act alone reveals God's his incredible compassion and grace for us. Because prior to the Ten Commandments, we don't have anything in recorded history that tells us that the nations discussed murder from the standpoint of morality. There's nothing inside of us that would lead us not to murder. We have plenty of evidence throughout history that, that there's lots of people that have no compunction about murder. So when the nations wrestled with murder in the early, the nations around them, they wrestled with it from a practical perspective, not a, not a, uh, a moral perspective. They learned that it's not very good to kill each other within your own family and tribe, but they had no compunction about murdering you if you're outside. In fact, that describes the Israelites for the early part of their history. And so when God says you shouldn't murder, that started a discussion within world history 
on why is it wrong? Because we're made in the image of God. That's one of the distinctives of Christianity. That's one of the gifts that Christianity brings. Judeo-Christianity brings to world history is you shouldn't murder. So the Ten Commandments. The second thing they find out is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens. It wasn't by accident. Really? Nope, it wasn't by accident. Everything you see is, by, is on purpose, with intention. Why? Why? Because you are important. Because you are important. You're not an afterthought. You're not an accident. You weren't created by the gods to serve them. In fact, you got that little twist going on because they had all been trained and raised that you were created by the gods in order to feed the gods. And what does God do? He creates you and feeds you. It's just the opposite of that. And as you begin to unfold this creation story, which we're not going to do today, you'll find out there are several very interesting points about it. One is, it highlights the unity and the oneness of God. It highlights the unity and the oneness of God. All the things that God creates in here, from the plants of the field to the fish to the stars and the moon and the sun, everything that God creates is a God in their world. Everything that's listed in Genesis 1 in the creation account is a God. They worship the moon, they worship the sun, they worship the fish, they worship the plants, they worship the, you name it, they worship. And so when God lays out what we think of as the six days of creation, you know what they would have heard? Wow, the God that we serve who just told us not to be afraid of him, the God that we serve, he, he created all these gods? And then God begins the story of saying they're not gods at all. In fact, whenever you read the Psalms, we read it naturalist, naturally from a naturalist perspective. God is the God of the ocean. God is the God of the trees. We sing praises about it. What they would have heard is, my God is stronger than your God. My God is more powerful than yours. So the very first thing God does is he lays out in a very ordered fashion that I am God and all these other gods that you've been serving are under my control. I created them, I made them, and they are nothing. We serve the one true living God. So the creation account strongly emphasizes the power and the unity of this one true living God. It puts a stamp, a big exclamation point after it. Everything you learned about the other, all the other gods, guess what? You're wrong. That's what he says to them. He's changing their thinking. The second thing it does is it highlights the significance of humanity. We're not an afterthought. We're not simply there to supply food to God. Now think about to the gods. God supplies food to us. Now the gods of Egypt, what did they come out with? Think about all these ideas. We'll just think of a few. You're, you're not good enough. You better work harder. You're not working hard enough. Harder, harder, harder. And our God says in the creation story that I'm going to take a day called the Sabbath 
And I'm going to ask you to rest. I'm going to ask you to rest. No God said to his people, you should take a break. You should rest. Isn't that phenomenal? To have a God that says take a break. Every nation around them worked for seven days a week. Their people worked seven days a week, long hours, make as much money as they could, earn as much as they could, blah, blah, blah. Same things that we struggle with today. And our God says, nope, take a day off. So not only is he asking us to rest, he's asking us to, to control, to limit, to mitigate how much money we can earn. Because on that seventh day, we couldn't earn as much money. So for those of you that are sole proprietors, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to take a day off and not work. It's very big. It's very powerful. Their God said, you're not good enough. Our God said, are you kidding? You're made in my image. You're the best thing in all of creation. And when they messed up, guess what? He said, it's okay, I'll take care of it. I'll handle it for you. All the ancient Near Eastern myths on creation talk about how everything starts um, and gets better and better and better. Our account says everything started wonderful and went right down the toilet. <laughs> because then it begins to emphasize God's grace and mercy from the very beginning, his compassion. Right off the bat, the very first thing he does is chase down Adam and Eve and begins to take care of them. That's not how the gods think. That's not how the gods think. The other gods said, you serve us. Our God says, no, I'll serve you. I'll take care of you. In fact, didn't Jesus say that? I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Serve who? You. Us. So the story of creation is undermining everything that the world thought and is totally re-envisioning the truth of what happened. The story of creation highlights his concern for us. He had just told them, remember they're standing at the base of Mount Sinai, don't be afraid. Trust me, have confidence. That's why faith is so important. Have faith in God. It highlights his concern, his care. Every step of the way, God is intervening to watch over these people every step of the way. The gods didn't do that. They never heard from the gods. So you see how this creation account is so powerful? Does it make sense? How it takes this young nation and begins to give them an identity around this one true God. In Exodus 19, when they're standing at the base, he said, if you obey my commands fully, I will make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You will become my prized possession and I will be your God. That verse is repeated in 1 Peter chapter 2 to the church. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. We belong to the one true living God, and we are his prized possession. He loves us. He cares for us. This creation account is powerful. Okay, I haven't said a word about the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say one thing about the Holy Spirit. Because this is how the Bible introduces him. So we're pretending we don't know anything about him. We're starting right at the beginning. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness or chaos was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. So you have this chaos. And the Spirit of God is hovering. God created it. 
and his spirit is now hovering and just waiting. Waiting for what? And God said, let there be light. There it is. And God said, and God said. So this Holy this Spirit that is introduced is in a very mysterious way. God wanted to know right from the very beginning that his Spirit was involved. From the very beginning. They're probably wondering, who is this Spirit? You didn't answer that question. And you're not going to answer it today either. You're going to have to wait. Who is the Spirit? We don't know. All we know is that he's hovering over the chaos, over the creation, and he's creating order out of it. He is in control. That's the picture. He's in control. You get it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you did for this young nation to turn them into a people, a people that would love you, a people that would come to know you over time. Thank you, God, for your love, your compassion, your graciousness. Thank you for truth. Thank you for giving us the story in such a compelling way of how you intervened in such a dark world. Thank you for blessing us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. We're going to ask the ushers to come down and take an offering. And uh, I would like to say thank you for, uh, thank you for being generous. You are generous. I, I have seen the numbers for a long time in our church, and you guys take care of us. By the way, we have a couple different offerings, so uh, ushers, feel free to go ahead and, and start. The offering that we're taking right now that's being passed back and forth covers all of the expenses, everything that we do to do ministry. So we heard Annika talk about VBS. That's because of this offering right here. Our food bank, that's because of this offering. In fact, the experience we have right here, we pay for all this. This is all out of the offering. So I would just like to say thank you for your generosity if God leads you that way. In addition to that, uh, every week during the amphitheater, we do a benevolence offering. We have a benevolence fund and a benevolence committee that helps those in our community that are hurting and, and need help and are destitute and poor. We will not pass a basket for that, but there are some receptacles. There's one right there, and there's one right there at the top of the two stairs, and there's one up top. If God leads you to want to drop some money in there to, for us to help the poor in our community, put the money in there, and uh, we will use it well. Thank you for being so generous.